Hey, everybody. It is Wednesday, September 6th. Yes, it's already Wednesday. It's a short week for many of us because of Labor Day. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, my understanding based on the Googles is today is Fight Procrastination Day. Procrastination? I would know nothing about that. I thrive on procrastination. Many people... <laughs> I think who go into journalism <laughs> yes. need those deadlines. <laughs> it's like, okay, but tell me when this is due. Tell me when the show is going live. That is my deadline. It's the exact opposite of my wife, Alex, who likes likes to get things done very early. Like something will come to us and, she, and I'm like, you know, that isn't required for six more weeks. She's like, let's just get it done now. <laughs> and it hurts me inside. It hurts me to get stuff done that early. I think you're right. I think it's something with journalism. Like we thrive on the deadline. We need that. <laughs> and I'm the same way. I'm going to turn it around and say thrive on deadline. Others may call it procrastination, but I'm going I'm going with the thriving on oh, deadline. I like it. It's the glass half full yes. approach. I mean, I will say that I have seen the light. I have an understanding now for getting things done early and an appreciation for it. But still, there's a part of me that like, there's a thrill to getting things done just like right in the nick of time. And by the way, that I think there's two kinds of people too when it comes to the airport. There are the people who like to like lollygag and like take their time. And then I thrive on like, did I figure out the traffic report to JFK perfectly so I can get through everything and be at the gate just as they begin boarding? You might change your strategy a little bit when you start traveling with baby O. I will say uh, that it adds kind of like this whole different level of complication <laughs> to, to travel. Got it. So I'll keep it for solo travel, but with children, understood. Add in several minutes or hours, I guess. Speaking of timing, let's get to some news here. A twist in the Murdoch murders. Why Alec Murdoch's defense team is seeking a new trial. Meanwhile, his son Buster is speaking out, saying his dad is a psychopath, but did not kill his mom and brother. It has been the summer of strikes, and now thousands of auto workers are set to walk off the job. Remember that hold of military promotions we told you about a while back? It is still going on, and now the Navy, Air Force, and Army secretaries are calling on Senator Tuberville to make it stop. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell and the rest of the nation's lawmakers are back from recess. McConnell's doctor out with his assessment of the Senate minority leader after his second freeze-up in just a few weeks. First Lady Jill Biden tests positive for COVID-19, and she's not the only one. Why it's so difficult to figure out how many people actually have the virus these days. Speaking of being sick, a troubling U.S. Open bug taking down some top tennis players. And we talked a lot on this podcast about kids and smartphones. And now some parents in Ireland are taking action with a ban for the youngest kids. Plus, Moshe is on this day in history. A big day when it comes to women's suffrage, uh, as well as uh, some music history when it comes to both the Beatles and Elton John. All right, let's get started. Just when we thought we may never hear the name Alec Murdoch again, a new twist in the Murdoch murders. He now wants to get his conviction thrown out. Now, to refresh your memory, Murdoch was once this highly esteemed South Carolina attorney. He was recently convicted of murdering his wife, Maggie, and his son, Paul, and he is currently serving two life sentences. Well, on Tuesday, his defense team accused the Colleton County Clerk of Court of jury tampering. In a motion for a new trial, his attorneys say that Becky Hill advised the jury, quote, 
not to believe Murdoch's testimony and other evidence presented by the defense. They say she pressured them to reach a quick guilty verdict and even misrepresented critical and material information to the trial judge in her campaign to remove a juror that she believed would be favorable to the defense. Now, they say Hill told jurors when they started to deliberate that, quote, it shouldn't take them long. And it didn't. If you remember, jurors deliberated for less than three hours before finding him guilty. As for her motivation, the attorneys say, quote, money and fame. They say Hill was trying to secure a book deal and media appearances, which wouldn't have happened if there was a mistrial. Hill did release a book about the trial. It's called Behind the Doors of Justice, the Murdoch Murders. That was in late July. That's when his lawyers say that some jurors decided to talk to them. Here's a soundbite from the lawyers' press conference today where they talk about how they learned about the alleged jury tampering. Jurors were upset about that, the ones we talked with, and they were more than willing to come forward and tell us the things that that we had sort of heard through a whisper campaign. But and, and so as a result of that, we were able to interview some jurors. We, you know, the information we got, I can tell you, was independent of each juror. The first juror we talked to, we got information about Ms. Hill saying, don't be fooled. And, and then the second juror, independent of the first juror, says the same thing. And the third juror, independent of the other two, say the same thing. And so we're very confident that the information is accurate. So we should note here that their motion for a new trial cites at least three sworn affidavits, one from a juror, one from a dismissed juror, as well as excerpts from Becky Hill's book. And so we'll see what comes of that. Meanwhile, Buster Murdoch, Alex's only living son, gave his first on-camera interview for a Fox Nation three-part docuseries about all of this. In it, he says he thinks it's fair to call his father a, quote, psychopath. But despite that, he does not believe his father killed his mother or brother. Take a listen. If you believe your dad's innocent, your mom and your brother's killer is out there somewhere. That's what I believe. Would he get someone else to do it? No, ma'am. I don't think that he could be affiliated with endangering my mother and brother. Buster also took aim at law enforcement and the judge in the interview and said he didn't think his father had a fair trial. He also denied having anything to do with the death of his high school classmate, Stephen Smith. Back in 2015, Smith, a gay nursing student who was 19 at the time, was found dead on a road not far from the family estate. There were rumors that Smith and Buster had some type of intimate relationship in the interview. Buster said, I never had anything to do with his murder, and I never had anything to do with him on a physical level in any regard. Originally, Smith's death was deemed a hit and run. So you might recall when we first reported on this, there's a lot of mysterious deaths around this family. When it comes to the Stephen Smith death here, that was put back in the spotlight during the investigation into the killings of Maggie and Paul by his father. That's when investigators deemed the death of Smith a homicide based on new information, but wouldn't disclose what that information was. Smith's body was exhumed for a second independent autopsy. Buster does say he has an alibi for what he was up to the night of Smith's death. He told Fox Nation he was with his mother and brother, both of whom are now dead. Buster added in that interview that he does now fear for his own safety because he believes the person who killed his mother and brother is still out there. So again, just for everyone keeping track here, Alec Murdaugh convicted in prison, uh, but his lawyers looking for a new trial. The son, the living son, Buster, uh, saying that his father's a psychopath, but he doesn't think his father did it. 
He thinks someone is out there who killed his mother and brother. In the meantime, the death that uh, the son, Buster, is connected to, he says he has nothing to do with. So just a recap there for everyone following along. I think I need to go rewatch um, the Netflix documentary about it. There's no shortage of documentaries <laughs> or podcasts about this whole saga. Okay, now to a major story we're watching over the next week that could have some very big economic ramifications for the United States. The 146,000 workers of the United Auto Workers Union is getting closer to a strike as its contract ends in just over a week next Thursday. The union is asking for a 46% pay raise, a 32-hour work week with 40 hours of pay, and a restoration of traditional pensions. A strike could shut down one or all of the big three automakers, General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis. The automakers argue that the union's demands are unrealistic at a time of fierce competition from Tesla and lower-wage foreign automakers, Ford offered a 9% wage increase and a one-time lump sum payment, while GM and Stellantis at this point have not offered counter proposals. Yeah, so the two sides very far apart here. Uh, you mentioned that they could shut down one or all three of the big three manufacturers. The union has to decide, are they going to strike on GM, Ford, and Stellantis, or two of the three, or one of the three? A lot of it depends on how much money they have to ensure that the workers get compensated while they're on strike. By the way, Stellantis is the new name for Chrysler, which uh, was subsumed in a larger merger. So uh, for those of you unfamiliar, that happened about two years ago. The United Auto Workers are responding to GM and Stellantis' silence so far by filing unfair labor practice charges against the two. The workers here are saying that uh, there are two standards here for the uh, executives and for the workers. Uh, they note that the big three have collected a net income of $164 billion dollars over the past decade, $20 billion of it just this year. And a strike could really put a dent in that. If a strike lasted for even just 10 days, it would cost all three automakers nearly a billion dollars. During a strike back in 2019 that lasted 40 days, GM alone lost $3.6 billion with a B. To soften the impact of a stoppage, the union plans to pay striking workers $500 a week to cover their health insurance premiums while they're out of work. They have a strike fund of just about $800 million dollars. Now, as far as the impact nationally, a strike could increase vehicle prices and impact the release of new electric vehicles. And this all comes against the backdrop that 2023 really has been a year of strikes or strike threats, uh, including that Hollywood strike of both the writers and the actors that has been going on for several months, as well as sizable deals uh, for both railroad workers earlier this year, as well as UPS workers with their company earlier this year. So the auto workers here uh, feeling emboldened and feeling that they can really make some significant demands there. Again, the two sides very far apart. Staying with auto news, the U.S. government is taking a big step toward forcing a defiant Tennessee company to recall 52 million airbag inflators that could explode, hurl shrapnel and injure or kill people. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration on Tuesday saying it has made an initial decision that the inflators made by ARC Automotive and under license by another company are defective. The agency scheduled a public hearing for October 5th, a required step before deciding to seek a court-ordered recall. In May, the agency asked ARC to recall the inflators, which it says are responsible for at least seven injuries and two deaths in the U.S. and Canada since 2009. But ARC has refused to issue a full-scale recall, setting the stage for a possible court fight. This is interesting because there's often cooperation between the government and manufacturers. But in this case, the company says 
there is no safety defect that exists and that NHTSA's demand uh, is based on a hypothesis rather than technical conclusions. And they're claiming the agency has no authority to order a parts manufacturer to announce recalls. Neither ARC nor the auto industry has released a full list of vehicle models here with the kind of airbag inflators that have exploded. But the estimate right now is at least 25 million of the 284 million vehicles on U.S. roads are believed to contain them. Doing the math there, that is one out of every 10 cars on the road. Owners of vehicles made by at least a dozen auto brands, Chevy, Buick, GMC, Ford, Toyota, Stellantis, Volkswagen, Audi, BMW, Porsche, uh, Kia, Hyundai, all the list continues here, are all left to wonder right now anxiously whether their vehicles contain driver or front passenger inflators made by ARC. Uh, Jill, I was Googling for folks who are curious, does my car contain this? And it is, again, millions of cars between 2000 and 2019, and we still don't have a comprehensive list because, again, there's this fight here between the manufacturer and the government. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the Takata recall. Um, Tens of millions of vehicles, you remember that, with Takata airbags? It was the biggest in American history, and this is set to be close to that. Plenty of news left to get to, but for now, a quick word from our sponsor. Parlez-vous Francais? Un petit peu, Gilles. (laughs) Very nicely done, Moshe. (laughs) I think you said maybe a little. Yes, yes, a little bit. (laughs) Okay, so I don't. That's about as far as I go, uh, which is why I am really excited about our newest sponsor, Babbel. The best way to learn a language is through immersion, living where the language is spoken natively and using it every day. But that isn't really possible for everyone. So what is the second best way to learn a language? Babbel. Because with Babbel, you could start speaking a new language in just three weeks. I'm about to start my French lessons, and I cannot wait. Why Babbel? Because it works. Instead of paying hundreds of dollars for a private tutor or fooling yourself with language apps that are a little bit more than games, Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. All of Babbel's tips and tools for learning a new language are approachable, accessible, and rooted in real-life situations. And they have a special limited time deal for our listeners to get you started right now. You can get 55% off your Babbel subscription. Just head to babbel.com slash monews. With our discount, that's just about $6 a month to learn a new language. Moshe, how do you say very good in French? Très bien, Jill. I don't know if I could do it with with the accent that you just did, (laughs) but that is très bien. Again, that deal, 55% off at babbel.com slash monews. And it's spelled Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Monews, M-O-N-E-W-S. Some rules and restrictions might apply. Time now for the speed read. Let's start with an update to a story we first told you about a couple of months ago. Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville continuing his hold on military promotions. This from The Hill, the secretaries of the Navy, Air Force and Army are calling on Senator Tuberville, a Republican from Alabama, to release his hold, accusing him of putting national security at risk. The three secretaries wrote an op-ed this week in The Washington Post saying, quote, any claim that holding up the promotions of top officers does not directly damage the military is wrong, plain and simple. They say military leaders are the foundation of America's enduring advantage that is being actively eroded by Tuberville's hold on promotions. It's lasted more than six months already. They write, throughout our careers in national security, we have deeply valued the bipartisan support shown for our service members and their families. 
But rather than seeking a resolution to this impasse in that spirit, Tuberville has suggested he is going to further escalate this confrontation by launching baseless political attacks against these men and women. At the center of the issue here, as we've told you about, is a new Defense Department policy that provides paid leave and travel reimbursement for abortions. So say someone is put on a base somewhere in a state that doesn't have legal abortion, what the new Pentagon policy allows is for potential reimbursement for someone to drive or travel to a state where abortion is legal. Tuberville claims that it violates what's called the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits federal funds to be used for abortions. Uh, He wrote on Twitter, I didn't start this. The Biden administration injected politics into the military and imposed an unlawful abortion policy. I'm trying to get politics out of the military. The secretaries here argue the policy is critical and necessary to meet our obligations to the force. Again, keep in mind here that service members don't have a choice of where they're based. They're moved around the country. And the Pentagon feels that the least they can do is provide travel reimbursement for an abortion here. They also emphasize that this hold harms U.S. national security. Right now, it has prevented the Pentagon from placing 300 of its leaders in critical posts around the globe. That includes the leaders of the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps. And the numbers keep escalating as this fight has continued. Uh, And in the Senate, you have the ability as a single senator to put a block on uh, nominations. And that is what has happened here with Tuberville. Military leaders are meeting with top senators on both sides to try to put pressure on Tuberville here. And they feel that speaking out now with the op-ed is important. Military families are enduring costs, genuine financial stress because these promotions are on hold and it's putting a backlog across the country. And again, a couple hundred positions here. Sticking with politics from Politico, an update on Mitch McConnell, the Capitol's top doctor, telling Mitch McConnell on Tuesday that, quote, there is no evidence that he suffered a stroke or has a seizure disorder following his public freeze in Kentucky last week. Capitol physician Brian Monahan outlining extensive outside medical evaluations of McConnell. We reported on it here last week. The Senate Minority Leader stopped talking for about 30 seconds during a media availability in Kentucky. In a letter to McConnell, Monahan recommended no changes in treatment protocols for his recovery from a fall that he had back in March that left McConnell with a concussion. So McConnell discussed it for the first time, albeit briefly, on the Senate floor Tuesday back at work. Uh, He makes a passing reference here to his freezing episode. Now, one particular moment of my time back home has received its fair share of attention in the press over the past week. But I assure you, August was a busy and productive month for me and my staff back in the Commonwealth. So you hear him saying there, it was a busy and productive month, again, despite the two freezes that he's had in the past five weeks. This is a critical time for the GOP leader as Sanders returned to Washington from a long recess uh, and have a lot at stake here as they try to avoid a government shutdown in the coming weeks. McConnell's team has attributed his two public freezes, the one in July and the one in August, to what they call lightheadedness, although Republicans have been hoping for more public information about his health. Since his fall back in March, which led him to go to the hospital, McConnell has had some problems hearing questions from reporters at times. In the meantime, there are still rumblings of a handful of Republican senators possibly forcing a special conference uh, to discuss McConnell's health, the future of the party leadership. It takes just five Republican senators to force such a discussion, although no final decision has been made as of yet. Jill, Republicans in the Senate here are very deferential 
towards their longtime leader and don't want to feel like they're going to speak out uh, out of turn to someone that they depend on for leadership uh, choices, as well as there's just a lot of loyalty, a lot of uh, tradition in that chamber. A couple of stories on the COVID front from CNN. First Lady Jill Biden tested positive for COVID-19 on Monday and is experiencing mild symptoms. So far, President Biden has tested negative. The diagnosis has upended the First Lady's plans to start teaching the fall semester at Northern Virginia Community College. Jill Biden, who is 72 years old, is uh, staying right now at the family's home in Delaware. She typically teaches on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So the diagnosis here for the First Lady comes during what is a very busy week for President Biden, who is scheduled to leave for the G20 summit in India tomorrow. It's not clear when Joe and Jill last saw each other. Uh, They keep testing him. Again, the latest on him is he's negative. They both tested positive last year. Both have been vaccinated. Both have been boosted. But her diagnosis does come amid renewed attention to COVID. Yeah, it comes as COVID cases are on the rise. Also from CNN, virus levels in the U.S. have been on the rise for weeks. But it's hard to know exactly how widely it is spreading Federal data suggests that the current increases have stayed far below earlier peaks and notable surges. But judging by word of mouth among family, friends and coworkers, it kind of seems like everyone knows someone who is sick with COVID-19 right now. And experts agree that there are probably more infections than the current surveillance systems can capture. Tracking COVID-19 trends uh, has always had its challenges, but the rise of rapid home tests and just general waning of public interest in testing at all has all but erased the ability to grasp current case counts nationwide. The CDC officially stopped reporting aggregate COVID-19 case counts months ago, noting that the data had become less representative of actual infections or transmission levels over time. Yeah, so as case counts became less reliable, we were all looking at hospitalization metrics as a substitute to gauge transmission. Hospitals were, a couple years ago, regularly testing all patients, whether they were coming in for COVID-related symptoms or something else entirely, and were required to report positive cases. But hospitals now have shifted their testing practices. The American Hospital Association saying when testing supplies were first readily available, we moved to testing everybody. Uh, Anybody and everybody got tested. Uh, That is no longer the case. Although hospitals are still required to report any positive cases, they've eased back on testing to be more in line with guidance around other infectious diseases. The focus right now is on those who are symptomatic, have been exposed, or might be around other high-risk patients. Uh, One other tactic they've used for a while now, Jill, wastewater surveillance, literally going through sewage systems uh, and testing that uh, for a sense of uh, COVID levels. But interpreting that data can be complicated. And with COVID, wastewater levels can't be directly translated to case counts. We do know this right now. There are many key measures that indicate an increase. Hospital admissions per week have nearly doubled over the past month, including a 19 percent bump in the most recent week, according to the CDC. A sample of labs participating in a federal surveillance program show that the test positivity rates have tripled in the past two months. Overall, there were about four new hospital admissions for every 100,000 people nationwide in the week ending August 19th. It is considered low, according to the CDC thresholds. Seven counties in the whole country had high levels of COVID-19 hospitalizations, but 117 counties, about 3.6% of the country, were in the medium threshold, and about a quarter of those counties were in Florida. This new variant, BA286, has captured scientists' attention because it is highly mutated, 
So far, though, it has only been detected in a small number of people globally. Yeah, so early tests right now show immune systems of people who had Omicron recently are handling a BA-286, which is kind of an offshoot of it, uh, and recognizing it. So far, there's no evidence so far that BA-286 spreads faster or causes more serious illness than the previous versions. Uh, some are calling it a, quote, scariant, Jill, uh, as in uh, all these mutations, but uh, no different impact. At the same time, there are a couple other variants they're watching too. But again, the numbers are hard to track here. But for context, what we know so far, you mentioned that hospitalization rate going up. Uh, as far as raw numbers here, the most recent week saw about 15,000 hospitalizations for COVID. Just to give you a sense of comparison, when we were at our peak about a year and a half ago, the U.S. was seeing 150,000 a week, so 10x that. So uh, while the rates appear to be going up here, we're nowhere near uh, what we were seeing about a year and a half ago. Also on the health beat, this from the New York Post, a mystery U.S. Open bug is making the rounds among star athletes at this year's tournament, resulting in shocking upsets and withdrawals as the athletes struggle to fight on the court through coughing fits and stomach aches. Tunisian tennis star Onj Jabor sang at a news conference Thursday, I am a zombie because I have a flu. She is just one of the many players who say that they have this so-called U.S. Open bug since the tournament started on August 28th. And a lot of people are complaining about stomach issues. Jill, you think it's because that uh, marijuana smoke coming off that one court? We told you. <laughs> First, told it's the marijuana. Now it's some mystery flu. Right. Mystery smell, mystery flu. On Thursday, Polish player Hubert Herkoc, uh struggled on the court and was treated by medical staff before ultimately falling uh, in his match. During the match, sniffles, coughs, and other signs of illness were heard throughout the tennis grounds. Off the court, tennis analyst John McEnroe reported on the second day of the tournament that he had tested positive for COVID. McEnroe's diagnosis and the proliferation of troubling symptoms among players has sparked concerns that the tournament may be a super spreader for COVID. This story from Fox News. Irish parents take action on smartphones amid soaring concerns over children's mental health. Parents in a town just 45 minutes outside of Dublin have banded together to enforce a smartphone ban for children until they finish elementary school. One of the residents of that town, it's called Greystones, who is also a clinical psychologist, said it was just the striking results of the rising anxiety, depression, and everything we noticed of having a mobile phone, especially among young kids. The support this town got was incredible. She also adds that children's brains are not fully developed, so their use of the phone is associated with anxiety, depression, obesity, sleeping disorders, and many other health problems. The parents' associations at eight different schools across this town decided earlier this summer to restrict smartphone access for their children amid all of these concerns. The agreement entered jointly by all of the groups was a rare show of unity among so many people. And basically, it would see children restricted from phones at home, in school, and elsewhere until they reach middle school and high school. This is an interesting approach because what I hear from some parents, Jill, is that they want to take smartphones away from their kids. The problem is that their friends and everyone around them has smartphones. So this sort of collective approach uh, appears to be successful, at least in this small case. By the way, we should mention schools there had already banned or restricted device use on their grounds, but the parents decided to take things there a step further. The Irish health minister, who lives near Greystones, supports the policy and has called for nationwide implementation. In an op-ed published in the Irish Times, the health minister argues that the country must look at some form of this approach nationally in terms of safeguarding young mental health. He cited discussions with students, teachers, computer scientists, mental health experts, 
all who back this policy, the health minister claiming that those conversations have made him aware of a few common themes, such as the, quote, damaging content children and teens can access from their smartphones, but also severe psychological anxiety derived from content related to eating disorders, body dysmorphia, and suicidal ideation. He noted that smartphones have a positive effect by allowing students to coordinate activities and remain connected, but said, we regulate food and drink and medicines. We have extensive child protections in place in so many areas of our society. We now must begin to do that in the digital space. Jill, this is not the first time this has come up uh, on this pod. We were just recently reporting on the World Health Organization and their warning to parents around the world. As you mentioned, Moshe, I do think that this is an interesting approach because students do feel that peer pressure that other kids have phones. And and look, I know as a parent, I'm always looking at my daughter's friends, parents kind of for guidance, say, hey, what do you think about this or that? So the fact that all of them are banding together, it could make a difference and, and make it easier on all of them to basically say, no, you're not getting a phone until middle school. Yeah, I think we're seeing this reversion to, to the flip phone too. It's like, they need a device to communicate with me, but do I want them to have a device with all these apps and social media and all these things that... Uh, increasingly, studies have shown, should not be accessible to kids of a certain age. All right, now time for On This Day in History. On this September 6th, we're going to begin in 1870, a woman in America cast her vote in the U.S. for the first time on this day. It happened in Wyoming. Her name was Louisa Ann Swain, and she voted in state elections in the state of Wyoming. As many of you might know, women were not extended the right to vote nationally until 1920, But 50 years previous, in Wyoming, the governor there signed a bill that gave women the right to vote. Uh, And so that meant that women in Wyoming, starting in 1870, could vote in local and state elections. Staying with some historical political news here on this day in 1901, Republican William McKinley, President McKinley, many of you might not be familiar with him because he was president for a very brief period. He was shot on this day in Buffalo, New York, by an anarchist. He would die eight days later, vice president. Teddy Roosevelt would take over at the spry age of 42. By the way, Teddy, still the youngest person to ever become president. Many people might think JFK was our youngest president. Well, JFK was the youngest to be elected president at 43. Teddy Roosevelt, the youngest to become president after McKinley's assassination. The Mo, you know. Also, interesting fact, uh, the assassin of McKinley was electrocuted in an electric chair, and that was filmed by the one and only Thomas Edison trying out some of his new technology. All right, fast forward here to 1915. The first tank in history was produced. Despite the fact that it weighed 14 tons, it was nicknamed Little Willie. They'd never tried out tanks before on the battlefield. The prototype led to the development of more successful tanks. Uh, This first one only went two miles per hour. But an interesting fact here as to why they're called tanks. This was all happening in Britain, by the way, in 1915. To keep the project secret from enemies, production workers there were told that the vehicles they were building would be used to carry water on the battlefield, hence tanks. So these new vehicles, uh, the UK was shipping in crates labeled tank, and the name stuck. All right, a bit of test news now as we talk about the U.S. Open. On this day in history, back in 1975, nearly 50 years ago, an 18-year-old rising tennis star named Martina Navratilova who would become one of the greatest players of all time, officially on this day asked for political asylum in the U.S. after defecting from then-communist Czechoslovakia. She was flourishing on the court uh, that summer of 75, finishing up as the runner-up in the Australian and French Open. She finally gets to the U.S. Open, and uh, as she reaches the semifinals, she announces her plans to defect to the U.S. 
All right, we're going to end here with a bit of music news. A happy 54th birthday to CC Peniston. You might not know her name, but you would know her hit. Finally, it rocked the charts in 1992. Finally, it has happened to me. I remember it very well, Mosh. By the way, she wrote those lyrics during her high school chemistry class. She was thinking about dating in college, and that is what inspired the song. All right, two other historical musical items here. On this day in 1968, the Beatles recruited a guitarist named Eric Clapton to add his now legendary guitar solo to While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Clapton became the first famous non-Beatles musician to guest on one of their songs. And that guitar solo still amazing today. And finally, 26 years ago today, Elton John recorded his reimagined version of Candle in the Wind after performing it at the funeral of his friend, Princess Diana. Goodbye, Rose. May you grow in our hearts. You are the great... Moshe, a solid on this day in history. Jill, I appreciate the compliment. We, uh, we try hard here uh, with the on this day team. Which is you and some of our interns. <laughs> Correct. Correct. All right. Uh, With that, thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this with your friends. It will help us grow. We will really appreciate it. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. Yeah, if you don't already, please hit follow uh, over on the app right now. You're listening to this podcast on at this exact moment. Uh, It'll ensure you don't miss a single episode. We have a lot of fun extras coming to you in the coming weeks. And if you like what we're doing here at Mo News, consider joining Mo News Premium over at mo.news slash premium. It gets you access to a members-only Instagram account as well as a members-only podcast. All right, bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.